Contemporary temporary, aka the transience of everything lasting. My footprints are frozen in snow outside. It's winter now, but I know they'll melt eventually. Imagine my anxiety if they didn't. If the stillness stayed, or more accurately, if the climate changed and seasons came so quickly that each just lasted half a day, so there wasn't enough time to thaw. My treaded path would last forever. Everyone's would, if the seasons blinked that fast. How we'd crave longevity, how we'd crave simplicity. I'd gaze at all our footprints and they would gaze back into me. Imagine my anxiety. That's such a great poem, Aaron. You performed it for me a couple mornings ago and it stuck with me, which is always a good mark of a piece of writing. Thank you. Or maybe it was just that I felt so proud and you just feel the need to compliment it because of that. But <laughs> I appreciate it either way. Yeah. And uh, it's supposed to be a lead-in for today's episode. It's kind of my general feeling about the muddle in the mind mm -hmm. that I think characterizes what's wrong with the world and what degrowth needs to remedy. And that's kind of what we're talking about today is how can degrowth free people's mind from whatever is wrong with them or free grown-ups, I think is how we, yeah. how we phrased it. And we're also going to start off by talking about degrowth adjacent movements or maybe some theories, organizations or practices that embody some of the same principles of degrowth, but I just go by different names. Yeah, in the book, Degrowth, the Vocabulary for New Era, the whole last section is about movements aligned with degrowth. Okay. So that's where I got a lot of my ideas from. But then also I drew on a few of my own things that I've learned that the years that seem, hmm, this isn't degrowth, but it is. Yeah. If you think about it. The first one that I chose is something that everyone knows about, even if you've never heard of degrowth, even if you're not interested in sustainability. And this one's probably the least aligned with degrowth because it still operates a lot under capitalism. It doesn't advocate for degrowth, really. But a lot of the ideas and organization are the same, and that is unionization. Right. What do you know about unionization? It's about uh, laborers coming together to, uh, to negotiate for fair rights. Yeah, so it's basically the people who are employed in a company trying to take ownership of the fact that, hey, if we all just quit mm. and refuse to work for you, you would make no money. Yeah, they leverage that, that communal strength. Yeah, so that's what unionization is. And I feel like that's kind of what degrowth is in a way of people being like, hey, government, if we don't cooperate, if we perhaps rebel in some way, there's some kind of a revolution, like you're going to crumble. It's like you rely on us. But we don't feel that autonomy because we're not used to that kind of empowerment because of the way we work, which is often outside of unions and the way that government functions. We feel, oh, they make the decisions. I have no role in it. Yeah, I, I think that degrowth is not necessarily combative. No. You know, it's not necessarily a, a confrontation between the populace and the government or anything like that. But also, I don't think unions always are. Exactly. The best of unionization is good for the employees and also the employer, which yeah. we, we don't often hear about. And that's something that I think, yeah, degrowth is, is similar. It's kind of just about exerting our collective effort mm -hmm. in a way which uh, creates a world which is closer to what we all want than we have now. Yeah. Unions also fight for the development of non-capitalist organizations like insurance and like education for the children of unionized workers and so on. So that's also aligned with degrowth because all the degrowth is is talking about Let's create these organizations that function outside of capitalism, outside of the current economy, for the most part, to try and reclaim our autonomy. So unions is my first one. Did you pick any for this section? Yeah, I have three. Okay. I'm going to start with, uh, none of them are exactly what they should be, in that they're just okay. they're movements that aren't at all synonymous with degrowth, but they remind me of it, or degrowth reminds me of them. Okay. So I'm going to start with this one, which is called the Kula Gift Economy or Gift Exchange the Kua are these people in Papua New Guinea. This is a, it's like a really famous case study in anthropology. It's, mm -hmm. it's one of the first things I remember learning about in university in my first year sociology and anthropology course. So yeah, the Kua are these people in Papua New Guinea and this gift economy or gift exchange spans 18 island communities in like a archipelago. Archipelago, yeah. Archipelago, yeah. Um, and they travel by canoe and they exchange these valuables like shell necklaces and 
armbands, like these really uh, ornamental and ceremonial gifts mm -hmm. or materials. And there's a lot of customs that go into it. Like I was reading about when you give it, that's a sign of prestige more than when you receive it. Mm -hmm. And so when you give it, you it's also a custom, I guess, that you downplay it a yes. lot, even though it's something really valuable. And another thing is that when they receive it, there's like a rule that has to be passed on really quickly mm. or else it stops being worth anything and the person starts to be judged a little bit, which I thought was funny. Yeah. And this is like a purely ornamental or ceremonial thing that the objects aren't exactly useful mm -hmm. in our, I guess, economic use of the word. Yeah. It's about status and it's about relationships and it's about constant connection between these communities because it's just a constant cycle, like mm -hmm. I say. And there's like a specific order in which the trinkets, I suppose, need to be passed on. So it's like, mm -hmm. oh, if you receive the armband, now you need to go here and receive the uh, the bracelet or something like that. Okay. It, it goes in a circle, basically. And um, I just thought this was a really interesting case study with regards to degrowth because it's a completely different relationship that these humans have to material mm -hmm. or to immaterial than we have with any material. Yeah, kind of, of course. Which is this um, economy that they're a part of is inherently communal mm. and uh, it's about forming relationships. Whereas yeah. us, when we hear about materials, especially something that is really valuable, mm -hmm. typically it drives us apart because we're yes. all like, vying for it. Yeah, I like the idea that the economy or the, like the gift economy is about building relationships. It's not building or like amassing wealth, amassing the most trinkets it's about yeah building these relationships i remember when i read braiding sweetgrass there was a whole section about the gift economy in indigenous yeah. cultures in north america and she talked about the gift of like the land giving to us mm. of every spring the strawberries grow and i am excited about it i take them but if you were taking them from a traditionally capitalist approach you think i take i take i take but when you think about a gift economy you think I take, therefore I must give something back. So they yeah. often leave tobacco when harvesting and, and the turning on the, land. And the status comes from the giving. Mm -hmm. Like let's say you're picking strawberries. Yeah. Um, you receive more clout. I don't know if yeah. that's the indigenous word, but you receive more clout <laughs> if you give on those strawberries. Yeah. And uh, we're actually recording this on Christmas Day. Yes. And something you always say is, well, I'm looking, more ex I'm looking forward more to giving the gifts than receiving them. <laughs> and that's something that I've never... I never feel, even though I think it's a very honorable <laughs> feeling to aspire to. That is my favorite thing. I love people's reactions because I like will think all year about something and I'm like, yeah, this is the perfect gift. And then even if they're disappointed, it, you can, they're usually not. But, but it's like but people are always thankful. That's kind of the ethical community goal of degrowth is how can we, mm -hmm. like that's the end game is trying to make clout, coolness, popularity come from your charity, not yeah. from your hoarding or your possessions. Yeah, that'll probably translate well in wanting to discuss about freeing adults because I was thinking we don't like we value volunteer time. If you know someone at your workplace who volunteers in all their free time, you're going to be like, whoa, I could never like I don't have that much self selflessness. And I think kind of allowing us to have that selflessness is an important part of degrowth. One of the movements that I chose I'm going to go with Buen Vivre because we talked about it last week and a few other times. So this is Living Well, and it's mainly, it's a South American movement with roots in Peru, Bolivia, and Ecuador in the 1990s. But it's obviously much more ancient than the 90s. Yeah. But that's when it was you, researched and you, documented. You mean like the 80s? So basically, Buen Vivre is an alternative to development, which is what degrowth is. Because we often think, okay, this is the route that all of these northern countries took. Therefore, everyone in the rest of the world is going to take this route. But with degrowth, it's not saying, no, those countries that haven't developed don't get to develop. It's like, obviously, we want everyone to continue e increasing their well-being, but not by consuming and consuming and consuming. So Buen Vivre challenges the development path and... The idea that consumption equals happiness. Um, they see that nature and humans are not separate as they are in our minds. We think, hey, there's nature, there's people, those are two separate realms. But for them, they consider nature expanded communities. So when you take care of the planet, 
you know that it's going to take care of you in return. Just as with degrowth, if you take care of your community, your neighbors, they'll take care of you in return. But all of these ideas have just been lost in whatever spiral we're currently caught up in. Gwen Beaver is also aligned with feminist and environmentalist movements because it's mainly a social movement. It's mainly about we want to increase welfare. We want to increase access to medicine, access to education. Um, but we also want to increase the value of the care economy and keep our eyes set towards the future. The cool thing about this, the final thing that I'm going to mention, is that it's intercultural. So it's not just looking towards indigenous knowledge. It's not just looking towards this one set of thinking. They look towards every group of people on the planet and they try and take the best out of all of them to encourage living well, which is, I feel like, what degrowth does as well. Yeah, I like when you said um, it's about having your eyes towards the future. Yeah. Instead of towards the present or the past solely. Yeah. Um, it actually brings to mind a question that I don't think we've touched on at all, maybe for next week, which is, what about degrowth and sustainability? Yeah, it's probably a good idea. Which is a key tenet of degrowth mm -hmm. and obviously of Buen Viva as well, but we haven't really mentioned it. Yeah. Which is funny. I'm going to also, just going off this, jump onto another one because they're very closely linked. This is called Ubanti or Ubuntu. It sounds like abundant, but just starting with a U. And it's from the Bantu-speaking peoples in Africa. And... The motto of this movement is a person is a person through other persons. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's like you only exist in relation to your relationships, which is what the gift economy you're talking about kind of emphasizes. And they also see the world, every decision they make in this three part little paradigm of the living, the living dead and the unborn. So they strive to honor the living dead and they seek wisdom from them. But the whole, the thing that's most valuable in their economy and their system is the unborn. So every decision they make, they think, how will this impact those who haven't been born yet? Which is something we do not value because we just value kind of the short-term fixes. But we really need to think, yeah. how will this impact those who haven't been born? Well, largely here is because the unborn don't buy anything. Exactly. And neither do the living dead. So mm -hmm. that's, that tends to be who we, who we think about most. Yeah. I have two others that are kind of small, so I'll just lump them in together, I guess. The first is the Ludites, which most people know, but if you don't, it was a group of English textile workers in the 19th century and 18th who protested their manufacturers who use machines in what they called a fraudulent and deceitful manner. Because mm. I was like, hey, we, uh, we protest machines, kind of. We do, yeah. In, in a way. And um, I always thought these guys were just really cool. Like I envisioned them just tearing through factories and like ripping apart <laughs> machines in a fit of rage because they hated that uh, progress and they saw straight through its empty promise. Yeah. But I guess, I mean, they did do that. They did do a lot of machine breaking. Yeah. But I guess it wasn't about any kind of inherent hostility towards the technology. Mm -hmm. It was because this is the only way we can get the message across mm -hmm. to the employers who are going to replace us and who are going to keep uh, saving us and keep you know, giving us less and less benefits in the name of competition mm -hmm. and in the name of capitalism. And I thought, yeah, we don't... I guess that's kind of true of us as well. We don't have any like, inherent hostility towards a keyboard, of course a not. phone, touchscreen. Mm -hmm. It's about the people who code those things mm -hmm. to use us. Yeah, and the kind of assumed intention behind them that they want to make it as addictive as possible yeah exactly it's like i have nothing against doritos mm -hmm. but i do have something against the fact that they're literally programmed in the salts and the sugars <laughs> to be addictive that's what i'm against is this i guess enslavement that's a bit drastic no i don't think it is i don't think it is yeah almost every degrowth book i've read starts with it's not a ludite movement <laughs> because i feel like those guys have a pretty bad rap but also the Luddite movement wasn't itself what we call today a Luddite movement. Mm. That's, what, that's, what I was, yeah. that's what I'm trying to get across. I've always had this vision, call it a dream, call it <laughs> just a, a, a premonition of okay. like some, some concert, like a musical mm -hmm. concert, and it's a rock band. So I guess that already makes it kind of uh, unlikely. Mm -hmm. But it's a rock band and they're all jamming out. And you know how they always like smash their guitars in rage and everyone's mm -hmm. like, yeah, 
but it's the front singer like hold or the lead singer like holds up his phone and like smashes it against the floor. Yeah. And then everyone in the crowd goes, ah, and then they all do the same. Did Kanye do that? No, I don't think so. I thought he smashed his phone on stage once, but maybe it was just you telling me this dream. I think it was. I've, I've, Probably. I've mentioned it many times. Yeah. I dream about it a lot because it's like this, uh, yeah, I just think that would be such a cool cultural moment would be dope. or something. And then it everyone at home would watch you on their phones and goes, ah, smashes yeah. their phone. I guess the irony is they wouldn't. No. They'd just be like, oh man, retweet. Yeah. <laughs> Look at this. That kind of happened with, uh, with Bo Burnham's comedy special, <laughs> Inside, that came out this summer, right? Yes. And he had a bunch of songs about, you know, amongst other things, how uh, technological enslavement and how maybe it wasn't the best idea. And all everyone did was make TikToks about it. I know. And I don't know if the irony was lost on them. It might. It probably was. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the other movement I want to talk about, which is maybe the biggest stretch from degrowth, is slow cinema. Okay. And I had three movies in mind because I'm not very well versed in slow cinema. But the three that came to mind for me were 2001 A Space Odyssey, mm-hmm. First Cow. Yes. Which is a movie that came out in 2019, directed by uh, (laughs) Kelly (laughs) Reichardt. The funny thing is, First Cow isn't even the slowest of cinema. I know. I think in her oeuvre, actually, it's one of the quickest. But Mm -hmm. it's because we're so used to John Wick or Mission Impossible. Mm -hmm. First Cow is like, what is this? (laughs) And to our modern attention spans, we lasted about 15 minutes before we fell asleep watching First Cow. Um, (laughs) And the other one that I had in mind was called Nostos, The Return, which was directed in 1989 by an Italian director called Franco Piavoli. And it's kind of a, an attempt at a period accurate Odyssey movie. Mm-hmm. It has very little dialogue. And when it is, I think it's in the, like, the authentic language. Mm-hmm. And uh, in all of these movies, I would say, in terms of the, the slowness of the cinema, how do you define that? Well, there aren't many cuts. Mm-hmm. The camera is usually pretty slow or static. Mm-hmm. Um, not a lot of physical action on screen, not even that much dialogue. Yeah. And I don't think all cinema should be slow. I don't think that makes sense. But I mm-hmm. thought degrowth adjacent movements reminded me of this because I think slow cinema can train our eyes and minds for contemplation and appreciation mm-hmm. of the everyday world. Yeah, the thing about all those movies is they have silence. Most movies don't mm. have any silence. Even the movie called Silence is mainly can mainly have a really booming soundtrack <laughs> in the true. background. It's true. And uh, it, it's in the same way as modern art. It's like people staring at a, at a white canvas just to try and discern all the slight variations in the paint and the way mm-hmm. the light bounces off of it and stuff and how it gives you more pre- appreciation for, say, a corner of a room mm-hmm. or something. that You can just stare at that and be in wonder at the geometry of the physical world or whatever, and you start to feel more grateful for mm-hmm. the place around you. And I know that's a, that's a common mindfulness technique as well. It's just to stare at something and really try and look at it properly without any other images going on in your mind. Yeah. And also slow cinema, I would say it strengthened our, our attention span, which is something that I think almost everyone acknowledges, oh, you know, the modern attention span. But then we never do anything about it. And I think it might be because we don't know what to do or... Also because we don't like, like it's not a fun thing always to just watch 15 minutes of like a, a plastic bag in the wind. Yeah. But it might be good for you. That's all I'm saying. I feel like it's good for you. I, neither of us chose this as an option, but I guess this kind of is adjacent. Like mindfulness and degrowth, they're super connected because mindfulness builds appreciation for the little things, appreciation for your surroundings, your fellow neighbor. And we basically live in like the opposite of a mindful society where you can walk down the street past 100 people and just look at your phone the whole time, not hear anything. You know, when you're like walking with your phone or you're walking even just with headphones in and you're like, I could have just ran three red lights. I could have yeah. like no, accidentally tripped over a dog. The scariest thing for me is when you don't have your phone on you, when you, when you don't have headphones in, but you have the same numbness. Mm-hmm. It's like you have those things. Yeah. That's what's scariest to me. And that happens to me all the time. Yeah. I do have a couple more movements. Okay. One of them is feminist economics, which we don't haven't talked about too much, but we talked a little bit about it in relation to the care economy, but feminist economics are anti-patriarchy, which in my opinion, the environmental movement is also anti-patriarchy, which isn't anti-men. It's just advocates for a non-hierarchical organization of society and the economy. Obviously, it's still an economic movement, so it doesn't advocate for degrowth of the economy, but it does advocate for valuing education, what parents do in the household, 
um, when you care for your elders and so on. And there is an excerpt I wanted to read from the book that I mentioned. And it says, actually, in a capitalist context, the lives of workers becomes means of production that are to be kept for the sake of profit within the limits of efficiency and social control. This process of transforming lives into capital is a moral and political battlefield that makes the link between economics and ethics indissoluble and sex and class conflict endemic in capitalism. And my favorite part of that is the idea that, okay, you work nine to five, but you can't not sleep. Like you need to sleep in order to function at work. You need to pack your lunch, you need to get to work. So it's like your life is in service to your employer. It doesn't matter because it's like people always say, just shut it off. Like just don't look at your phone, don't look at your computer when you get home. But it's like you still need to rest or else the next day you're going to not be able to do anything. You know what I mean? Hmm. And that's what feminist economics protests, I would say. It says, okay, do your job, but like fewer hours, more empathetic towards the employers, more collaboration, more valuable work, I would say. And that's really aligned with degrowth in my mind. Do you want to guess what the organism of the week is? Okay. Um, is it a plant? Yes. Is it green? Yes. It is oh my, this is the closest I've ever been. Does it have leaves? No. Okay. Think what day it is. A Christmas tree. Christmas tree. Because I was going to do something relevant to the episode, but then I also was like, we're recording on Christmas. So I chose a pine tree, which is the, one of the most common Christmas tree varieties. Yeah. You're not going to have me describe an image? You can describe an image from your mind because I didn't um, pull one up. Okay. It's kind of triangular mm. and pointy. The image from my mind is just completely 2D cartoon. cartoon. Yes. It's very uniform green <laughs> color. Doesn't mm. require any adjectives in front of the green because it's just green. Yes. And maybe it has like a frizz around it. Instead of needles, it has frizz. Or needle. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they're all almost identical unless they're a shrub because there's pine shrubs. But I'm talking mainly about the trees, and they're 45 to 63 meters tall, and they're the largest group of trees within the family of conifers. A Christmas trees that tall? We cut them down that early. <laughs> and every year, 120 million Christmas trees are cut down. That's why I wanted to give these guys a shout out, because they're very plentiful. They grow everywhere in the Northern Hemisphere, so they grow in Russia and China and North America. They're everywhere. But like... I don't love how many we cut down. Are you against Christmas tree I'm mildly tradition? against Christmas trees. Oh, man. The thing is, I think it's fun. I like the idea of going and just cutting one down on your own. Not like at a Christmas tree farm. Yeah. Because I don't love monocultures because it's not good for the, the planet or the soil. I don't like deforestation. Not a big deforestation person. Okay. But, I mean, like, I think the tradition actually is cool of, like, having... Some boughs, perhaps, just cutting some boughs off the tree and putting so them on like your mantle. a wreath. A wreath, okay. yes. So you still get the smell. Yeah. But without the destruction. Yes. Maybe there could be a town Christmas tree mm -hmm. that doesn't get cut down. It's just a really big tree. Right? Hmm. Yeah. There's also options to do ones that come in pots. They're very expensive. But perhaps if we all wanted them, it would become less expensive. Well, over time, it might not be that expensive because you get to reuse it every year. Yeah, it's true. Um, the actual tradition dates back to Roman times and they just put boughs in their house to represent life in the darkness because evergreens are always green, which is neat. And I always appreciate them in the winter when it's like kind of depressing and everything's gray, but you still have those little pops of color. So yeah, I just wanted to give a shout out to those green prickly guys who are in all of our homes, except for ours and I'm sure <laughs> some other people's. That's a great segue into adulthood because <laughs> I feel like I sound like a cynical adult when I'm talking about Christmas trees. Yeah, so we're going to devote the rest of the episode to how to free adults. We kind of spent last week's episode talking about how to free kids, I guess, or different ways that kids can learn. Mm -hmm. So this is like the grown-up version of that. Yeah. So 18s only, 18s mm -hmm. and over only. Um, <laughs> I kind of split this question into three or four groups because it was like, well, what are we freeing grown-ups from mm -hmm. was, was my first question. 
but I didn't want to be negative and just spend a lot of the episode describing things that are wrong with our mind. Yeah. So I was like, I'll do it in a poem at the start. And also I'll direct people to one of our first episodes, which was what is wrong. Yes. So that's one of our first solo scene episodes. And it was kind of describing this cultural milieu that we're all in. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to retread some of the same ground because it's kind of depressing to talk about. Also, I think if you're listening to this, and even if you're not a regular listener, a lot of people these days have a kind of intuitive understanding of what we're talking about when we say things are bad. Yeah, we say we need to free adults. People know what we mean from. We don't mean we need to free them from their shackles physically. It's about more of a mental crisis. <laughs> yeah, so my first kind of solution or thing I wanted to discuss was something I touched on last week when I talked about Disney's Recess, mm-hmm. which was a cartoon that they had. And I said it provided this really great illustration of how large the playground feels like when you're a kid. Mm-hmm. And we kind of beat around the bush, but what we didn't say was all of the problems start really when you stop viewing the playground as huge, when mm-hmm. you start becoming too cool for it, when you start sitting out gym class and thinking, why would I participate in this? This doesn't matter, mm-hmm. essentially, which is, I think, the adolescent beginnings of a lack of mindfulness. Yeah, You're never really truly present anymore. Mm-hmm. And something we've been talking about recently between ourselves is sometimes you meet people in the wild and they have a different energy to them, a really positive energy. They mm-hmm. have a, a light behind their eyes and you know, oh, this person's different. They are present all the time. Yes. I experience this most often. I would say it's kind of random where you find these people. Yeah. Hopefully the listeners, if you know, you know. So we're not just, (laughs) so we don't just sound crazy. But uh, when I took a few theater classes in university, Mm. I felt there were a lot of really mindful people there. That's a really excellent example. They they were, um, they were dedicating themselves to, as they say in Dead Poet Society, squeezing the marrow out of life or whatever they say. Yes. That's what it's like. So for this mindfulness, I guess I would say we need to be freed from the barrage of sounds and images that are constantly playing in our minds. What we were saying about even when you don't have headphones on, you feel like you have headphones on and you feel like you are dulled to the world's Mm. pleasures and pains. Yeah, I think it also is related to comparison. Like over, you could probably track school spirit, which then translates into community spirit and yeah care for i think school spirit's a good barometer for everything yeah so the decline would probably go almost perfectly with the hockey curve of access to media of like yeah hey my school isn't like the school in in the john hughes clubs yeah Yeah. and it's like why would i care about this lame spirit week like in high school musical look at that it's true and so and obviously a billion other references and we do that all the time even when i'm walking down the street you're talking about soundtracks like if I don't have headphones and I'm always like thinking of like the soundtrack or like picturing myself kind of somewhere else, even though I live in like my dream city, it's like you kind of augment everything in your head. It's not, then... it's not what you thought it would be, right? Yeah. Like it's not as cinematic as you thought it would yeah. be. That's something, that's another reason I mentioned slow cinema in this episode, mm-hmm. because there's so many movies that are just always soundtrack. So someone's looking yeah. out over a beautiful vista, which they might be in real life. You might yeah. have a really nice landscape like that but you're not going to have the sweeping violin score behind it in mm-hmm. real life. So that's not going to be the same. Yeah, there's no color grading when you look, unless you have really cool sunglasses, maybe. That's true. I had comparison as a thief of joy written down on this page as well. Um, mm-hmm. It's just a great, great saying. Yeah, I like it. So some mindfulness techniques that I thought go a little bit with degrowth, but degrowth of the individual, degrowth mm-hmm. of the mind, were sketching. Ooh, that yes. really works for me. That's one of the few things that I can reliably do and it puts me in the moment for mm-hmm. I don't know 30 to 60 minutes yeah it's it's a form of meditation I guess mm-hmm. which is something else next on the list meditation meditation I, I say it with a disclaimer that it doesn't have to be sitting cross-legged with your eyes closed thinking about nothing whatever you do that puts you into that meditative mood mm-hmm. I would call meditation David Lynch does this type of meditation which I'm sure lots of other people do where he like lets his mind run for as long as he wants. Yeah, it's like the, it's transcendental meditation. It's yes, kind of that's what the, it's called. The opposite of a regular meditation where you try and clear your mind. Yeah, but when I learned about that, I was like, this is like the answer. Because whenever I mention mindfulness and meditation to people, they're like, I could never. Seems boring. Seems boring, lame. Yeah. But it's like, what if you allowed yourself the time to just think? 
that isn't when you're trying to fall asleep because I feel like that's when we often do this like transcendental meditation when you're falling asleep thinking about every mistake you've ever made in your life that's another option but obviously is. drawing is a is a way of meditating just walking barefoot outside Ooh, a lot of creative acts yeah and also I find genuinely talking to people is another form of mindfulness it's mm -hmm. if you're having a real conversation it's hard to be thinking about other stuff yeah small talk of course that's that's rather anti-mindful but if you're having a legit conversation mm -hmm. I know that's not easy to find no <laughs> um but that's a that's another good practice yeah the final thing for this section I want to talk about is that the usual mindfulness advice I think is to do less slow down be less mm -hmm. busy reflect but I actually have been thinking about it that I think good advice is to do more. I think that's it's, a good idea it's, it's as well. to try and do more things because I think a problem can be spending too much time reflecting and trying mm -hmm. to find ourselves and uh, inadvertently ever increasing our self-awareness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I always, I'm, I think, a creative person, but I would never consider myself one before kind of a revelation I had upon meeting you. But it's like I have this mental block of I want to learn how to do something creative and get good at it. But then there's always the thinking about it for months and months and months and being like, do I have the right supplies? Do I have the skills? Blah, blah, blah. But it's like when I just start trying stuff, like I try something, yeah. I try, like I started crocheting a couple weeks ago hmm. and I'm like, oh, this is something I have a knack for, Yeah. which for me, that's important. I don't like having to like really like plow through to get good at something. But it's like, had I not just started doing a bunch of stuff, I would never have found this one thing which well, stuck. A lot of that planning and thinking and preparation is really just boosting our neurosis. Mm -hmm. Like I had this thought the other day, something else I mentioned last week about kids that kind of mirrors for me like the fall of men is our self-realization. There's a period when you hit adolescence where you look in the mirror mm -hmm. and you start seeing yourself, oh, I'm kind of ugly like mm -hmm. that or I'm kind of short or something, mm -hmm. which is never good. And it's like social media and the internet has just amplified that like crazy yeah. to the point that I would say most adults are narcissists I'm including myself in that mm. um yeah most of us are at this level and it's all about trying to reduce our self-awareness now I think like I asked you the other day what makes a situation awkward or cringy yeah and because I think that's a complaint that so many young people have yeah oh that's so cringe I can't look at that or yeah that makes me feel so awkward I know young people have always been, you know, I mean, you're learning how to socialize. Well, yeah. But I feel like our generation is especially so attuned to that feeling. Mm -hmm. And what it really is, is like if you're in it yourself, yeah. if something feels awkward, it's as if you have a, a third person camera watching you from above mm -hmm. saying, oh, that wasn't very smooth or something. Or mm -hmm. oh, you fumbled a handshake or you dropped a pen or something like that. Yeah. So it's yeah. all about trying to see things first person again. Yeah. I'm going to relate this to degrowth because... I think that's important like mindfulness obviously goes hand in hand but the when you're less self-aware you're just more focused on other people I find well, that, yeah that's a that's a big way to get less self-aware yeah like I'm sure mothers aren't like oh I wonder if I look okay like they're they're just caring for their children in the hospital you mean yeah but also just like on a daily life like parents don't think too much about their parents or themselves you can tell even you can tell, I find. Like, <laughs> parents come home from school and or come home from work and they just are like, hey, supper, da 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 do all mm. these things. And then when, like, 10 o'clock hits... Because they have things to occupy their time, right? I mean, exactly. they have to do this. They have responsibility. Mm -hmm. And that leads into my next uh, section, which is about agency, power, responsibility. And I think a lot of our current, I would say, nihilism comes from this idea that nothing's my fault. And uh, this can be, be kind of charted with globalization and mass media, which has absolved us of all responsibility, I would yeah. say, um, whether that's legitimate or whether that's just what it seems like. Mm -hmm. It's much easier to just blame, say, Jeff Bezos. Well, yeah. Um, and though it's easier, I think it actually does not lead to happiness whatsoever mm -hmm. because you have no control over what Amazon does. Yeah. You do have control over your own actions. Mm -hmm. So if you kind of trick yourself or just... If schools teach kids that everything's your fault. Okay. Everything like everything's your fault. That sounds like it would make people depressed, but I actually think it's the opposite. Because it gives people purpose. Yeah. If everything's your fault, then you can fix everything. Yeah. I like that you idea. You can control that kind mm -hmm. of thing. And I guess the degrowth way of doing this is to make politics and production more local. Mm -hmm. Uh distribute power in a way that you having a say at your municipal election. 
mm-hmm. is actually having a say for something meaningful. Yes. You can clean up the streets around you, things like that. Mm-hmm. And and also less mass media, so you're not inundated with what the streets in Cincinnati look like. Mm-hmm. You're more focused on what the streets around you look like. Yeah. I think something, I don't even know if we need to preface it with this, but like in degrowth, people will work less. So we'll have more time to do things. I don't know if we'll work less. I think like meaningful work can take a lot of time. We'll sweep less, probably, hopefully. Like we'll be on the cash register less. Yeah. But I think we can be doing meaningful work for a long time. Yeah, you can be, but you're not going to have to do 40 hours of meaningless work to survive. It's like if your passion is volunteer or like street cleanup or whatever, like you can do it. Next thing I want to talk about in terms of freeing grownups is beauty. And I'm including representation in this. And I guess I'm going to subtitle this, the story we tell ourselves. And I had some points. One is paving paradise. Okay. Firstly, I was just thinking about that line. And it's like, we didn't pave paradise in the past. Mm-hmm. We are doing it. Yes. So that's that's kind of a a distinction. But when we do that, it's like we make everything ugly and that makes us more miserable, mm-hmm. of course. But it's also like it implies that we don't deserve the paradise. Mm-hmm. We deserve to live on pavement. Yes. It's kind of like when people talk about communist buildings and how they make the people inside them feel. Yes. It makes you feel like you're nothing. Yeah, it makes you feel not valuable. Yeah. And uh, I think... On a large scale, that's what we've done when we say, Mm -hmm. wow, nature's so incredible, so beautiful. Look at all these trees, but you have to live here. Yeah. Kind of like that. And another point is our depiction of ourselves, of individuals, of grown-ups, of kids, of families, pretty much of everything. Christmas is a time when a lot of people watch old movies. Yeah. We recently watched the, I don't remember what year it came out, maybe 1951, The Christmas Carol that has Alistair Sim. Mm-hmm. And the scene with Bob Cratchit and Tiny Tim all around the table and that family always, like when I saw it, I was like, whoa, that would never be made today. No. That idealized, the dad comes home and just everyone's happy. Mm-hmm. They're just all being nice to each other. Yeah. And you could say, well, that was an unrealistic depiction of a family. Yeah. But I would say it was an idealized depiction of a family so that people at home watching it at Christmas could strive to be that, to, could try and see themselves in that yeah. and could, uh, could aim for that. Mm. But now it's like we are obsessed with depicting people and families and relationships as fundamentally flawed yeah, and, and always flawed and drama. And so I think, uh, you know, life imitates art, mm. vice versa. Yeah, that's a really excellent point. Another point about beauty I had was that forced preservation is ugly I had this idea too the other day. I didn't really think it through, so please don't judge me. But it was like, what if we just scrub the internet every three or five or one year or something? Mm -hmm. Or at least the social media part of the internet that everyone uses because everything being archived is not a nice feeling. There's Mm -hmm. so much baggage. There's so many footprints in the snow that never melt. It's kind of what that's like. Yeah. And it reminds me a little bit of when people don't, like when people say, oh, I wish celebrities would just age gracefully instead of getting so much plastic surgery because it looks really unnatural. Mm. that's kind of what I feel like yeah it definitely traps us into this kind of identity that we've built for ourselves because I feel like pre-internet if you wanted to reinvent yourself you reinvent yourself but a little bit with like oh I have my Instagram profile you can delete everything but there's this little idea in your mind of like but everyone knows everyone saw they're going to compare it to this old picture of me they're going to know that I'm yeah doing this new thing i just don't know that there was such an obsession with inventing yourself or with it's yourself true. that's what i mean about like the narcissism it reminds me of with pop stars today culturally everyone's so obsessed with eras mm-hmm. it's like oh well this is her new like when taylor swift was like evil yes and then she's like folksy mm-hmm. and then maybe she's like 80s it's like that's not how humans are yeah but that's filtered down to where that's how humans think they are now and i know yeah. it was always a thing that teenagers went through phases yeah of course but i think that's been exaggerated and uh we've clutched onto that as a culture so much that now adults do it yeah i mean we all as a society crave identity which just like doesn't exist anymore so adults and kids alike are trying to find their identity in an era or in a phase or in a capital a aesthetic but i think that identity should be what you do Mm -hmm. not what you wear or what you say or how you talk yeah or your hair for sure sounding like dr seuss here 
a little bit. And uh, yeah, just the thing with preservation and ugliness, degrowth is so natural that it just, it lets things age and die. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. Yeah. Things can die. Mm-hmm. The final point I had about beauty was that we put aesthetics last all the time. Yeah. Like with every decision we make, finance and say practicality mm-hmm. or profit always goes ahead of how things look. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's it's fine and it makes sense that aesthetics don't always go first. Yeah. And I think they should sometimes come last. But mm-hmm. I don't think it's good for us that they always come last. Like every time profit will come first. Yes. And um, if we kind of went like that, there would have never been the frescoes in Italy. Yeah. And what this kind of implies subconsciously, I think, is that your eyes don't matter, your experience, your senses, mm. you being around beauty, that's irrelevant. Yeah. What we need to do is make money. Mm. And I think that just makes us sad. Yeah. I feel like when I picture an adult, I always picture them like getting Tim Hortons. <laughs> and it's like, okay, this is going to be a little bit of a tangent, but it's like Tim Hortons is just like this shell of like an old coffee shop. They used to sell the like always fresh, oh, a little local coffee shop vibe, but, but now it's, it's just like... It's a giant franchise it's here a giant in, franchise. in Canada. Yeah. But it's like literally for the same price or like maybe a few cents more, you can go to an authentic coffee shop and value the experience, get to know the barista, get to know the regulars. And you could do that in a Tim Hortons, but there's something lost because there's no authenticity in them. That's a good point. Also, a lot of adults just don't like the taste. Exactly. But they're addicted. Yeah. Or, or it's just easy rather and cheap. Yeah. I mean, you don't drink coffee, but I do. And I, when I began drinking it, I made the promise to never settle for coffee. <laughs> So I've drank Tim Hortons coffee once in my life and I drink it most days. But it's like, I know so many adults who are like, yeah, I just drink whatever coffee, the gross like Folgers, like, which is really bad in my opinion. And it's like, just like putting in the effort to find a coffee set up in your house. And like, you can get stuff at the thrift store. It's not like it's that much more expensive than like a fresh, than a new like machine. It's like just putting in the effort to make a ritual out of something small. Yeah. I'm using coffee as the example, but it could be whatever. That's a good example. I'm aware that we sound kind of snobby here. Yeah. But it's just about um, prioritizing your life on this earth. Yeah. I mean, like, you're going to feel so much happier if you just took that, like, extra three minutes and those extra $10 to make a really nice experience in the morning when you wake up instead of slugging the folders out of the... You know what um, what Macklemore says? What does Macklemore say? He has a line that is, a life lived for art is never a life wasted. I really like that song, actually, 10,000. There you go. Yeah, that's a good song. But yeah, just in like little things in life. And I'm sure lots of people say that. But in degrowth, I feel like it's really important of like, maybe there won't be Tim Hortons, but that doesn't mean you're going to be coffee-less. <laughs> It'll actually be better because you'll get to make your own coffee or go to the local coffee shop. I feel like another thing that kind of traps adults is... I feel like we all like acted of necessity. I was thinking a lot about education for adults because we've been talking about education for kids. And it's like, I feel like adults only learn as needed. It's like, I need to learn how to fix my bike tire. I'll learn it. I need to learn how to cook this new type of meat or whatever you're cooking. I'll look it up and I'll learn it. Yeah. But I feel like there's no freedom or time or interest to learn kind of superfluous things or even learn things in advance of when you're going to need to learn them yeah we're just fighting fires all the time yeah so i feel like just like allowing ourselves a little bit of time to read the self-help book to read the article on politics or whatever you're interested in and allowing yourself to be not an expert in anything but Hmm. to be well-rounded because we're like kind of afraid to dive into philosophy or psychology if we know i'm not going to go to school for this i'm not going to be an expert and it makes sense because i think younger people are more willing to do this because Mm -hmm. the younger people, let's say I want to get into astronomy, which I don't know anything about. I know that there aren't many 22 year olds who are like super into astronomy. So Mm -hmm. the little that I know might be ahead of a little bit. Yeah. But let's say you are a relatively educated, like 50 year old Mm -hmm. and you want to get into astronomy. It's like, but there's so many people who, you know, it's too late for me. Basically I'm going to be way behind. But something that really stuck with me, one of my high school teachers said was, that he enjoys going to lectures of experts that he just doesn't understand a word they're saying. Mm-hmm. He, he loves being reminded of that. Yeah. And he feels that he's um, kind of inductively learning some stuff yeah. or just recognizing words. Mm-hmm. 
mm. and it makes them feel smart in that way and yeah. or, or rather like um when you're exposed to a lecture which is very clearly designed for people above your level it still kind of uh triggers the same synapses and maybe even gives you a little bit more of a creative response than if you were actually mm. understanding it kind of yeah for sure so i think just like freeing adults to allow that if you're listening and you're an adult go ahead learn learn <laughs> that thing that you want to learn yeah i want to i want to be like that yeah, and I would like to as well. In university, I'd try whenever there'd be special lectures, like attend, even if it was something I wasn't really interested in, but still you'd sit there and you'd feel dumb and you'd be like, all these other kids, they've read all the books that they're talking about. And it's like, but you need to free yourself that like, you can't be an expert in everything. Yeah, that's also your self-awareness speaking, right? Yeah, exactly. Which is comparing yourself. Yeah, for sure. Because those people who are always experts in things, I find they're never self-aware. They just like talk. And it's like, they could make a mistake, but they're like, oh, learning experience yeah i mean self-awareness gets in the way of learning a lot I yeah think. yeah that's really important the only other thing i was thinking for adults was we've talked about internet libraries amongst ourselves the idea of these places where you go and use the internet instead of always having it in your pocket and i feel like in a degrown world that would be a bit more of a thing or at least the computer room of your house yeah because right now it's like like anyone who has a phone isn't learning so you can always take out your phone and translate something or do a calculation or look up directions. You're never forced to do any of those things. But if we didn't have phones in our pockets, we'd be forced to learn the geography of our place to learn some quick calculations or what have you. It's true. And I think that would be a very freeing thing if we stopped relying on our phones. Even just cancel your data plan. For the sake of education, you mean? Yeah. I agree. My last point was about relationships. So this is about phones for the sake of socialization. Yeah. But I think... The three kind of things I talked about, which are mindfulness, uh, power, and, and beauty, these all feed into the idea of connectivity and socialization mm -hmm. because I think our biggest thing from which we need to be freed is our isolation, which yeah. can be so relaxing, mm -hmm. calming, comfortable, appealing. Yeah. Because I'm, what, like a 95% introvert probably? Yeah. Or higher. Some would say you're the highest. Um, <laughs> pretty introverted, but... When you spend time always by yourself, whether it's reading, whether it's on your phone, whether it's even playing guitar or watching a movie or whatever, it's really hard to make memories by yourself. That's mm -hmm. something that I think our culture is really uh, like a, a, an assembly line today for introverts. It's so easy mm -hmm. to, for young kids to grow up introverted. And I think it's happening more and more generation, generationally. Yeah. So the three points ahead with regards to relationships were kind of questions. The first one was, as you mentioned, what if we didn't have portable internet access? Mm -hmm. There's this video on YouTube, and I'm aware this is irony because I probably watched it on my phone. It's called something like 7-Eleven at 2.30 a.m. in 1987 or something like that. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever watched it. No. But it's this guy who just had a camcorder in a 7-Eleven. I think it was near Disney World or something. Okay. And he's just, he doesn't work there, but he's speaking to all the employees and all the other customers who come in. And there's just such a spirit of fun. Okay. And I feel like today there would be such a spirit of distrust. Like mm -hmm. if someone tried to talk to you today with a camera on you yeah. in a gas station, you'd be like, no, I don't want to be on YouTube or you're trying to interview me for something. You know, there's such, mm -hmm. a, such a cynicism we have towards other people today. Mm -hmm. And I think the internet, I mean, that's, that seems to be the biggest, uh, the biggest factor in that. The other point was, what if we had to rely on each other locally? I know we have to rely on each other for food and shelter and like snow clearance and things like that. Yeah. But we don't know each other's names because we're relying on people who work for big companies mm -hmm. which aren't named after them. Yes. So if you just relied on, relied on Joe's Pharmacy mm -hmm. instead of Pharma Pre, yeah. then you know that Joe's the one you should thank. Exactly. And Joe's the one to whom you should bring the or address the Christmas card. Exactly. I really like that statement i have one of my ideas for freeing adults was like the repopularization of salons theater coffee shops and i kind of mentioned that the, the other things it was just like there's such a such a joy that comes in those places where this kind of ancient lost art of socialization yeah. exists i told you the other morning like yesterday i think i was in a coffee shop and this man just walks and he's like turn off the music and it was <laughs> it was christmas eve and they were playing this like Italian music in this Italian coffee shop and they all just started chanting they're like agua <laughs> and like random points in the song like this is obviously an inside joke but it made me smile and it made everyone there smile who like didn't get it 
And they were just like dancing around and they were like, Happy Christmas. And they were like so excited and like none of they were at work. Yeah. And this man was probably on his way to work, but it was just so nice and it was so cheerful and like it's so freeing. It makes me feel like, oh, I can build relationships with people and like just be free. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Um, my last point is kind of a, a, margin, a merger of our discussion about freeing adults and fixing education in the degrowth world. And it's about socializing kids better mm. so that adults are more social. I think that's excellent. Yeah. Um, one just small example I had is that at m- almost all my classrooms from like grade four to 12 or something, mm-hmm. all the desks were individual Yeah. rather than just everyone sitting at one table. Mm-hmm. And I know that's like a really um, kind of corny management technique. It's like, oh, what if we had round lunch tables? Yeah. Um, but, you know, what if we did? Yeah. <laughs> that's one thing. And another one is more intergenerational communication. So you have the kids mm-hmm. speaking to the really old people and the grown-ups. Yeah. There's really weird, like, generational online squabbling that goes on. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, Gen Zs do this and, like, millennials do that. Yeah. It's like, who, who cares about that? Like, genuinely, I'm curious about who... Who identifies me? I'm a Gen Z. So yeah. who, I've never seen in real life like a, an old person and like a kid be like, oh, you're so, I can't believe you're doing that. Oh my goodness, so lame. Like yeah. no one's actually like that. The 80s sucked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I've never seen that in real life. And I've seen, I've been around quite it's, a few it's different. It's just an internet thing where it's like, oh, we need something to talk about. Yeah. You're old. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, distrust. Freeing. Degrowth. Love it. Love it. I feel like we need another degrowth question. Oh, yeah. Well, I had another one I wanted to talk about. So we have the sustainability. We can keep going down the psychology route, maybe, okay. which is what does degrowth media look like? Okay. Because the thing it. is, we can kind of denounce our mass media on the internet, but we both love cinema mm-hmm. and we both love some streaming yeah. stuff. So, yeah, we can talk about that. Yeah, I think that's excellent. So thank you all for listening. I hope you have a great holiday season if you listen to this over the break. And we are super grateful for you all. If you want to contact us, feel free to email us. We've been getting emails and it always makes me like almost happy cry because sometimes I feel like I'm shouting into the void. And you can also buy our zine if you're interested. It's on our website, www.solocene.org, which is an accompaniment to the series or just a standalone introduction to degrowth featuring art and poems and other cool stuff. So we're seeing.